Father in heaven, I pray now that you would cause us to cast our attention, our cares uh, upon you, uh, to listen, to hear that which uh, you have to say to us. I pray that we would know the sacredness of this moment of hearing your truth proclaimed. Thus, I pray that you would take away any distractions that the evil one or circumstances or even that which might be fluttering in our own hearts would bring up. And so we pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to Colossians in chapter 1. If you've been with us lately, no surprise. Your Bible's probably starting to open there. Um, I think we probably have one more week on this particular group of verses. But I want to read verses 9 through 14 is all this morning. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9, please. Hear the word of God. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, Paul knows what is necessary, what's essential to life. And he prays that. He knows what's essential to life, and so he prays that that would be true, that which is essential to life, that would be true in the lives of these people. He hasn't met them. This church was unfounded by him. Paul was in prison at the moment. This founding pastor, Epaphras, has gone to Paul to, to share with him. No doubt he may even have been converted himself under Paul's ministry and then gone to Colossae, had been there. He reports to Paul about this church, their faith in Christ, their love for all the saints, the hope that they have because of the gospel. And Paul is moved to pray for them. And as he prays for them, he prays that which is essential, that which is important for life. He knows that to really live, to really live, not to exist, not to simply be breathing and be about certain things, but to really know life, to really live. He knows that we must be filled, that is, be controlled by, we must be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Because he is the one who's important. He's the one who made us. So we need to know what's important to him, what his will is, what pleases him. And we need to have the desire that is to be filled with. We need to have the desire to do that. That's really living. To be a real human being, to really live as one who's been created by God in his image, is to desire to be filled with to desire to do what is pleasing to God. So to do that, we must have a knowledge of his will. So Paul prays that they would have that. And he prays, therefore, that they would have it so that they can walk or live in a manner worthy of the Lord. You see, as we come to know God and know his will and know what pleases him, we must know of Christ. 
the Lord. And as we know of him, then we're to walk worthy of him, walk worthy of the fact that he is the one who gave himself, that he is our savior, and that he is the Lord. And the way that one walks worthy of a Lord is to obey that one who is the master. So you walk worthy of the Lord. And we walk worthy of the Lord in love because he is our Savior. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians uh, in chapter 5 and verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. You see, when we know him as the one who has saved us, when we know him as the one who has given himself for us in our hopeless condition while we were still his enemies, what I read in Romans chapter 5 in our call to worship this morning. I'm sure you were listening. We were his enemies once. Now we're reconciled. And when you get that, we understand that Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live, really live, you see. When you get that, you're really living. When you, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for Christ, who for their sake died and was raised. And so we're to have a knowledge of God's will to know what pleases him, to be filled with it, that is to desire to do it. This is the most important thing to us, so that we can really live, which is to walk to live in a manner that shows Christ as who he is to show the great worth of Jesus which means that we live to please him that results in our being conformed to his image that results in our bearing fruit in every good work Jesus said if you love me you'll obey my commandments the apostle writes that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So we were created by God. Adam and Eve, there was sin. Then this renewal, this regeneration, this recreation, this being new creatures now because of Christ's work and the work of his spirit in us. And that, so that we can now do that, which is good, so we can please him. And so Paul says what's important is life is to know in, in life and for life is to know his will, to be filled with it, to, to have the desire to do it, so that you can do it, so that you can walk in a manner that says, Jesus is the Lord, the one who has saved me, and I desire to please him. And thus, I'll do that which is good because I know that pleases him. And in the meantime, I'll be increasing in my knowledge of God. I'll be maturing in all of this. And now Paul prays this. Notice verse 11. He says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Saying, listen, if you're going to live a life pleasing to the Lord, you need to endure, you need to be patient, and all of that with joy. Endurance, that is keeping on, that is being steadfast, that is not stopping in your desire to live a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him, to continue on in that, and to be patient, that is to be one who has the temperament that doesn't get riled when things don't quite go the way you think they ought to go, whether they're with circumstances or with other people, to be patient is very, very important in life and for life. Notice how Jesus 
puts it in this parable we call the parable of the sower. Remember, Jesus says that the, 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 the kingdom of God is like uh, a man who goes out and sows, a farmer who goes out and sows seed. And, and he notices different places where that seed falls and, and he uses that parable in a figurative way to teach us something very important. But he talks about one seed that falls on uh, uh, a rocky ground and it, and it doesn't take good roots. And here's what happens, he said. As for, this is Matthew 13, verse 20. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he's no root in himself, but endures, or continues, would be a literal way of saying that, but endures for a while, and while tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. He says, no, no, that, that isn't right. As you hear Jesus say that, no, no, I don't want to be that one. That's not the good thing. The good one he talks about as the seed sown on the good soil. That's the one who hears the word of God and understands it. And he bears fruit and he yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another thirty. You get the sense that what really Jesus is saying is, you're to endure and to continue on. Even in the midst of tribulation, even in the midst of difficulty, it's important for you to do that if you really have life. Then later, actually before, in Matthew in chapter 10, Jesus is speaking concerning the difficulties, the persecution that may come upon his followers. He speaks to them and he gives them warning against what he calls sheep in the midst of the wolves. He says that we're to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. He says, beware of men. They'll deliver you over to the courts. They'll flog you in the synagogues. And he says, brother will deliver brother over to death. Father, his child, children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. How is that for truth and advertising? He's saying this is... This is what it means to follow me. And then he says this, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Luke records Jesus as speaking like this in Luke in chapter 21. Similar context. He's talking to them about what could very well happen to them because they're followers of Christ. And again he says you will be delivered up by even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they'll put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. And then he says this, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. That is by enduring, by persevering, by being steadfast, you'll really get, understand what life, you'll be living life at that moment as you steadfastly stay and stand by me. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote to this church in Colossae, knows from which he speaks, for instance, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 and verse 12, he talks of his, of his own life as, a, uh, as an apostle. And he says in verse 12, when reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure. It's 
no matter what comes our way, we continue to endure. Uh, in chapter uh, 9 of 1 Corinthians, he puts it like this in verse 12. He says, Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right. He's saying he could have rights to a wife. He could have rights to be paid and all of that. But he says, we don't make use of this right, but we endure anything. He says, we live through anything. Because there's a bigger purpose in our lives. He says, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He says, we endure anything. This endurance is, he prays for them to endure. It's very significant. When he prays for them to be patient, to be a person who without grumbling and complaining can wait on that which is good, who can endure and, and be patient with people who may even come against to harm then in 2 Corinthians in, in chapter 6 and verse 4, Paul uh, pleads his own case as, as an apostle. And he speaks like this, verse 3 says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found in our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. He says, this is how we commend ourselves to you. We're the real, I'm the real deal. I keep walking with Christ no matter what. He says, great in- endurance in afflictions, in hardships, in calamities, in beatings, imprisonments, <clears throat> riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. He says, I endure. I'm still continuing to follow after Christ, even though all of this has come against me. And so when he prays for this church to endure and be patient with joy, he knows about which he is speaking. Surely it's true in his life, he writes it for all, that endurance is necessary. Romans in chapter 12, verse 12, he writes to the church in Rome, Rejoice in hope, be patient, or better translated, I don't know why the ESV used the word patient there, it should be, endure. Endure in tribulation, or persevere in tribulation, be steadfast in tribulation, consistent in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality. In other words, don't be deterred in anything that you're doing. We know this passage in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10 and verse 13 concerning trials and temptations. He writes to them, no temptation, you can also translate that, no trial, no difficulty, no temptation has overtaken you that, such, uh, that is not common to man, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted or tried beyond your ability. But with the temptation of the trial, he will also provide a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. Stand up in the midst of it. Not just endure it gritting your teeth. Not just endure it by way of resignation to say, well, I I guess it's just like this. I I guess nothing can be done about this. Therefore, I'm stuck here. So I better make lemonade out of lemons. I might might as well do the best. No, since you endure it, but we know what he means by that because of this passage in Colossians, to endure it with joy. Not complain about it. Not just grit your teeth. But to endure it with joy. And he says, God will help you. He will strengthen you, even as he prays. He will give you this way of escape. When Paul writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, I could look up a hundred endure verses. So go home with your computer and just plug in the word endure. Um, if you're a Greek person, it's monet. There you go. Doesn't that sound nice? I was trying to figure out something to do with monet to make that understandable, but I couldn't. 
I guess he kept painting. Um, but uh, um, through all kinds of difficulties, but I don't have a clue about his life. So anyway, if you're an artist, maybe you can help me. But, but another translation is hupo meno. This little word meno means to abide, to live in the midst of it. When Jesus said, if, if you abide in me, he was saying meno. He was saying live right there in me. And so when he's saying to endure, he's saying, I know this is a difficult circumstance. Stay there and continue to walk worthy of me. I will strengthen you. I will help you. That's his prayer that people are able to do. He writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, about being a minister. And this is very close to me this week. I spoke with two dear young pastor friends this week who were being fried by their churches. And, And so when Paul writes to Timothy, he says... Endure. Be steadfast. Don't let this circumstance, don't let these circumstances that might arise in the midst even of church to cause you to stop walking worthy of Christ and pleasing Him. Be patient, even with those who do and say that which harms you. Love them. And so he writes... Paul does to Timothy about that. We read in the book of Hebrews that they're to continue in the faith. That seems to be the issue there. They seems to be, seem to be wavering their faith. So by the time we get to Hebrews chapter 10, uh, the author of Hebrews says to them that uh, they're to continue to endure. And he reminds them of a situation where they did endure, where, where some were being persecuted and they visited them in prison. And while they were visiting the ones who were in prison, uh, they, uh, the, the, the authorities were, were ransacking their homes and taking all their stuff. And he says, you endured that. You suffered that with joy because you knew the, that you have a, a, a greater possession in Christ. When John sees this great revelation at the end, He notices this revelation, chapter 1 and verse 9. He speaks of enduring as matter of fact. He says, I, John, your brother and your partner in the tribulation and the the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So he says, if you want want to be in Jesus, you want to be part of who Jesus is and live in the sphere of Jesus. He says, here's what comes with it. Tribulation and the kingdom. So Jesus is ruling and reigning, though you're suffering tribulation. And if you want to live in him, there's this thing called patient endurance, that you must stay with him steadfastly. And so as he writes to the church in Ephesus, for instance, in chapter 2, and verse 2, he says to them, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. That's a good thing. He writes to the church in Uh, Thyatria, chapter 2, verse 18. And he said, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. He says, yes. Continue on even in the midst of the difficulty. To the church in Philadelphia, he writes to them this. He says, listen how it's phrased. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. So he says, he says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, it's as if Jesus is saying to them, I taught you this, 
I told you that this would be necessary. I told you that if you follow after me, there will be some who hate you. I told you already, I've given you the word about this. You've counted the cost. You've seen my worth. You've followed me. You've understood that even no matter what happens, I'm the one, Jesus said, who has eternal life. So, so you have no other real choice once you get that but following me. And since you, you obeyed, you knew, you observed my word about patient endurance, and you're doing it. Yes! That's what it's about. And we read through the scripture about patience, and we know that, that love is patient. And endures all things. If we're going to be one who loves as Christ is loved, then we're going to be patient people. We're going to be able to make this valuation and say, that which is to come is good. I can wait without grumbling, even though I know it's difficult now. And I can be patient with you. In the midst of all of that, it's a fruit of the Spirit. As the Holy Spirit works in us, we know that He works patience in us. We know as we get to Colossians chapter 3, if ever we get to Colossians chapter 3, in verse 13, he says that we're to put on patience, bearing with each other in the midst of life. Notice, again, just to grab a hold of this, a couple of passages. 2 Corinthians, if you can, turn there in chapter 6. 2 Corinthians in chapter 6. Paul speaking of his own life of enduring with patience. I read part of this a moment ago. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 3. He says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found in our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truth, by truthful speech, by the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we're treated as impostors and yet true. In other words, he's saying this is how we're treated by people. Could you imagine? And the answer, of course, is yes. We can imagine Paul being treated as an impostor. He's treated as an imposter even still, all the time. Take a course on the New Testament or Paul's letters at any major secular university and they will treat him as an imposter. They will say, this isn't really Paul, this isn't really a man who's called by God. We don't really know that much about him. It's this mythical story, it's this created thing. But even then, they, some, even in Corinth... We're treated as impostors and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying. Behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as as having nothing, yet possessing everything. He says, I'm able to endure in the midst of all that and with patience. In chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks of his of of a certain time in Asia, verse 8, he says, For we don't want you to be ignorant, my brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia, for we are so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. How did he endure through such a situation like that? Verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So what happened during despairing 
Where did he fix his eyes? Anybody thinking of a passage in Hebrews? Chapter 12. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. What did he do? He endured. What did he endure? The cross. How did he endure it? With joy. Look upon him. Paul speaks of all the difficulties he faced. By the time we get to chapter 12, it isn't simply this persecution that he's enduring and so forth, but also this thing called a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what that was. Most think it was some kind of a physical uh, malady, perhaps dealing with his eyesight. Others think it could have been a bit of malaria that he may have picked up. Uh, Nobody really knows. He doesn't really give us that. But he speaks of it, verse 7. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. How did he deal with that? Well, first he dealt with it by realizing that it was for his good. He had great hope in the midst of this affliction. So he could endure it, saying, if I have this, it must be for my good. Even if I term it a messenger of Satan, I know that God is sovereign. Therefore, Satan can't do stuff. I've read the book of Job. I know that God can't do anything, that Satan can't do anything, even without the mysterious ordination of God in the midst of my life. Heidelberg, question number one. All things are subservient to my salvation. Just a little hint about what that meant. And um, therefore, he says, this must be for my good. So how? Well, to keep me from being prideful. Oh, yes. Because I've had these marvelous experiences. And thus, even this I understand from God. Thus, I can endure it. Why? Because I know God is blessing me because of it and through it. And God will strengthen me. Why? Because Paul understands, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. The more this thorn weakened him, the more Paul depended upon God. The more he depended upon God, the stronger he was made. And he says, Ah, we win. I will endure. Second Timothy, in chapter 3, again, Paul writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, verse 10, puts it like this. I'll get there. You, meaning Timothy, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. Paul just rehearsed a group of people who weren't enduring. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, that is my endurance, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. Uh, Timothy was from Lystra. He would have known what happened firsthand to Paul there, that Paul was stoned by people, drugged out of the city, left for dead. You would wonder, Paul, why are you still doing this? If that's what happens to you when you preach. I mean, you all are really nice to me after I preach. Uh, It would take only a few probably negative comments and I'd probably retire. I couldn't do that. can't afford to do that. I'd go get a different job. (laughs) But but here, look what happens to him and he keeps doing. He's resilient. He endures. He's steadfast. He's patient even with those that may come against him. 
He said, yet from them the Lord has rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says, understand that. While evil people and impostors go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue. Endure. Now how, what word, did Paul give Timothy to continue? He said, but you, but as for you, continue in what you learned and what you firmly believed. Go back. Don't stray from that which was taught to you, that truth. Knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are ever to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. He says to Timothy, go back to that which you were taught. You were taught by those who loved you. You were taught by your mother. You were taught by your grandmother. Remember what they said. Kids, all the children who are here, please realize that you have been given a sacred trust. That God in his wonderful grace has given to you the truth. Stay with that truth your whole life. And whenever you find yourself unable to endure, go back to it. Meditate on it. For those of you who grew up in a church context and were taught the truth, don't stray from it. Come back. Some of you are sitting here today because you were taught it and you did stray. And then you came back. Don't despise that which has been taught you in love, that which is... The truth, Paul says, that's for Timothy, his means of strength, his means of endurance to know this word. James puts it like this, James chapter 5 and verse 7. Verses 1 through 6 in James chapter 5, he's speaking, James is, of the rich who are exploiting the poor. And there's nothing in that culture the poor could do about it. So James rails against the rich, saying they shouldn't be as they are. They shouldn't be exploiting the poor. They shouldn't be uh, um, afflicting these people to whom he writes. And his solution, James' solution, to those who are suffering is this, be patient. Couldn't do anything about it. Courts were against them. The rich people were in control. And so he says to them, how, how, they looked at James and says, okay, help us live in the midst of this. He says, be patient. Wouldn't you want to punch him? You know? I mean, that goes against everything anybody learns in Pastoral Counseling 101. He says, no, no here, I know your situation. I really know your situation. So here's, here's what you need to do. You need to be patient. You need, to, you need to sort of take the long view. You need to be calm in the midst of this injustice at the moment coming against you. You can't do anything about it, so be patient. God is sovereign. Be patient. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Fix your eyes upon the coming of the Lord. That is certain. And when that happens, then justice will come. So make sure you bank on that. Make sure you rest in that. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how a farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives 
the early and the late rains, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. Little word, establish your hearts. There's a wonderful expression in Luke chapter 9 about Jesus, whereas he was traveling and doing miracles and all of that. The day came when he realized it was time for him to go to Jerusalem. The, the passion was about to begin, and he was, he was going to take a while to get there. But the scripture says that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, if you're reading through the Gospel of Luke, you should get shivers at, that, shivers at that point. That's the dramatic moment. That's the moment that everything turns, everything changes. And if you're visualizing it, you realize that there's something that comes over Jesus and he turns to Jerusalem. And, and I, I sense that if you were looking at it at the moment, what you would see in his face is a resoluteness that would say, nothing can deter me from getting to Jerusalem. My mind, my heart is established to go there. And so when James says establish your hearts, he means plant an anchor in your heart. That is, Jesus is coming. Justice will come. Good will come. And I can wait. He says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Don't grumble against one another. That's the patient part. How many of you know when times get difficult, it's very easy as we try to endure to turn on each other? You see it happen when families go through difficult times. People go through difficult times, it's, it's easy to turn on one another. When you get sick and go into the hospital, it's easy to be angry at the nurses. Be patient. Don't grumble against each other. Don't be judgmental. Don't say, well, this is your fault, you know. Don't grumble against one another, brother, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It's an example of suffering and patience. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. When you think of Isaiah, what do you think about? When you think of Jeremiah, what do you think about? When you think of the great prophets of old, then you think, well, Isaiah, tradition says, was... Cut in two. Oh. Read Jeremiah's life. It wasn't pretty. But we know they were blessed by God. He says, oh yes, think of that. And you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job had a miserable experience. Obviously lost all of that in some significant way, continued to wrestle with God, be steadfast in the midst of that. God gives him this great revelation of who he is at the end. And Job then, in some sense, able to see purpose. Purpose in the sense that this was so that I would know God. This was so that I would be humbled. This was so that I could really see him and know him like I never knew him before. And that purpose should be sufficient for us to endure anything. Yes, God is teaching us in the midst of that. That's why James would open his letter with these lines, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What's maturity in the life of the believer? It is not to be tossed, 
to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by every difficult circumstance, but yet to be able to maintain steady, steadfastness without bitterness and anger, without complaining, continuing to walk, knowing that Jesus has loved you, that he is the Lord, and to please him in every good work, bearing fruit. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Now, when we think of discipline, we think of being grounded for three weeks or getting spanked or whatever. Discipline here means training. You've been coached. You're being trained here by way of these difficulties. So endure the training. Take it all the way through. And you'll grow up. Paul resting, of course, on that which he knew, the call to worship this morning, Romans and and chapter 5. He speaks first of our justification. He says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that. You think, what could be more than that? What could be more than rejoicing in this great hope that we'll see the very glory of God and be glorified? But more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. How is that true? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. How does character produce hope? It says, look at this. It's true. It's working even in me. I see Christ. And this hope doesn't disappoint because it reminds us, it tells us, it experiences God's love being poured out in our hearts by way of the Holy Spirit. The hymn we sang to begin our service, O Father, Your Sovereign, was written by a woman named Margaret Clarkston. She just died last June. Uh, Was born in 1915. Suffered her whole life, pretty much. She, her parents divorced when she was 12. She never married. That was a big deal to her. She was very lonely throughout the course of her life, even though later in life she was able to write a number of books, a number of articles, and of course, many hymns. Her mother says that the first words, the first complete sentence Margaret made as a young girl was, My head hurts because she suffered all her life with migraines so much that the nausea got so bad that she would have long fits of vomiting because of, and in the midst of the pain of these headaches, she was struck with juvenile arthritis, had a deformed spine, endured many surgeries through the course of her life, many done before surgery was as good as surgery is today. She writes... God is sovereign and that for her is great comfort because she knows this Father you're sovereign in all the affairs of man no powers of death or darkness can thwart your perfect plan 
All chance and change transcending supreme in time and space, you hold your trusting migraine-inflicted, spine-deformed, arthritic children secure in your embrace. Father, you're sovereign, the Lord of human pain. In the midst of her affliction, she knew that God was sovereign and that her pain was not random, but purposeful. Transmuting earthly sorrows to gold of heavenly gain, something's happening here that's eternal. All evil overruling as none but conqueror could, your love pursues its purpose, our soul's eternal good. Oh, Father, you're sovereign, we see you dimly now, but soon before your triumph, earth's every knee shall bow with this glad hope before us. Our faith springs up anew. Our sovereign Lord and Savior, we trust and worship you. Paul's prayer is that we be strengthened. We need power for this. This doesn't sort of come naturally. And the way this power comes to us is the same way this power manifested itself in the life of Paul. That is, when he was weakest, he was strongest. Thus, as these afflictions come, you will, I will endure them because God will give us strength. As we feel weak, we're to cast our eyes upon him, go to him, and he will give us strength. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us, that we would believe this. That we wouldn't be afraid of what is to come in life. And even as we experience the difficulties of life, some of us today, very real, May we not turn from the right or to the left. May we not collapse under it, but rather you would grant us strength according to your glorious might that we might endure and be patient with joy. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Our response is to sing praise to God. Blessed be your name. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us. To be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore together. Let us sing.